Chapter 13 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 The Indian and Certain Social Traits and Customs. In the treatment of younger children by those who are older, the white race may learn much from the Indian. While it must be confessed that Indian youth are cruel to lower animals, I have never seen, in twenty-five years, an older child ill-treat a younger one. There seems to be an instinctive mothering of the little ones. The houses of the Hopis are built on the edges of frightful precipices, to fall from which would be sure and certain death. Yet, although the youngsters are allowed to play around with the greatest freedom, such are the care and constant oversight of the little ones by those who are older that I have never known of an accident. There seems to be none of that impatient petulance among the Indian children that is so common with us, no yelling or loud shouting, and certainly no bullying or cowardly domineering. Then, too, there is a very sweet and tender relationship existing quite often between the very old and the very young. I know this is not unusual or peculiar to the Indian, but I deem it worthy of note here. I have often seen a grandfather going off to his work for the day in a cornfield with his naked grandson on his back, and the youngster clung to the oldster with an affection and confidence that were absolute. It should also be observed that respect and reverence are nearly always paid to age. In a council, the young men will invariably wait until the old men have spoken, unless they are definitely called upon. If a cigarette is offered to a young man in the presence of his elders, he will not enjoy it until the older ones have lit theirs and taken a few puffs. A girl or young maiden will not sit down until places are found for the older ones and they are comfortably seated, and, of course, the same rule applies to the boys and youths. It may also seem strange to some of my readers that I insist that the native Indian is inherently honest. I did not use to think so, and I know of many dishonest Indians. But as a rule, these are the ones that are partially civilized. They have had so many things given to them without rhyme or reason that they come to regard all things of the white men as theirs. Scores of times I have left my wagon, laden with provisions and other materials, such as cameras, camera plates, clothes, etc., and I have been gone for a week or a month. As I now write, I can remember only twice that anything was taken. Once a young man, who had been to our schools, broke into a box of oranges that I had taken as a great luxury after a desert tramp, and ate several of them. I soon learned who the culprit was, made complaint against him, had him brought to my camp, and asked him why he stole my oranges. It must be remembered that it is an unwritten but well-understood law of the desert regions that a truly hungry man is always allowed to help himself to needful food, 
but without waste or extravagance, and with due care for the owner or those who may come after. This young man claimed that he had taken my oranges because he was hungry. I gave him the lie direct, for, said I, had you been hungry, you would have been willing to eat meat and potatoes and bread. Instead of that, you went prowling around until you smelled these oranges and then you stole them. In future, even if you are hungry, you must keep away from my wagon and camp, for if ever you touch my things again, I shall see that you are severely punished. It was a stern reprimand yet in this case it seemed to be necessary. The other time that things were taken from me was when I had promised certain women and girls some calico and bead necklaces in return for something they had done for me. Foolishly, I showed them the bag in which the calico was. My hostess was also to be a participant in the distribution of favors. While I was away on a several days' exploring trip, she took it into her head that she ought to have the first choice, and as I had promised the peace to her, there would be no harm in taking it. When she had made her own choice, and told of it, of course she could not protest against the others making theirs, so, when I returned to my Indian home, I found the bag pretty well looted. It was not long before, little by little, the whole story leaked out. When I was sure, I told my host, and informed him that I wanted every piece of calico and every necklace returned instanter. In twelve hours everything was back in place, as if by magic. Then for several days I kept the promised recipients in a state for I intimated that their conduct was so reprehensible that I doubted whether I should give them anything or not. This made them very anxious, and when they dropped in, two or three at a time, I took the occasion to tell them how I resented their helping themselves to my things while I was absent. With these two exceptions, in twenty-five years' experience, I have met with nothing but perfect honesty. No, now I remember a small whip was taken from my camp many years ago, but when I complained, it was found and returned. I have left camera plates by the score in boxes that could have been opened, and the results of my months of labor destroyed by nothing but idle curiosity. But when I have explained that I was going away and expected to find everything untouched on my return, I had no fear, no misgivings, and invariably found everything in perfect order when I came back. I doubt whether I could leave things where the whole population of any of our American cities could get at them and find them untouched after a week's or a month's absence. Another interesting fact about the Indian is that when he gives a name to a child or an adult, it generally means something. Among ourselves, names are oftentimes either quite meaningless or senseless. For instance, my parents gave to me the name George. When I was old enough to begin to care about such things, 
I asked and found out that George means a husbandman. And all through my life I have borne that name, a husbandman, when my ignorance of agricultural pursuits, I am sorry to say, is simply dense and unspeakable. What is the sense of giving such names to children? And when we come to the Algernons and Reginas and Sigourneys and Fitzmorrises and all the high-sounding but altogether meaningless names with which we burden our children, I long for the simplicity of the Indian's habit, the poetry, the prayer, that so often are connected with the names they give. The old Hebrews knew something of this, for we read of many of their names having a definite and decided significance. One day I found a Chemawavy Indian with the name Toambo Isi Korum. After a little working of it out, I found the name signified the reddish golden pathway of glory made by the setting sun from the zenith to the horizon. I asked the man's mother how he came to have such a name, and here is her reply. As I gave birth to my son, I looked up in the heavens, and there I saw the golden reddish glory reaching from above where I lay to the faraway west, where the sun was just setting. So I said, It is an omen, and may it also be a prophecy. And my heart went out in prayer to those above, that the pathway of life of my newly born son might be one of golden glory until he, too, passed out of sight in the west. So I called him Toambo e Sikorum, which signifies what I have said. End of chapter 13